Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. This is my first time in Calgary. This is a beautiful city. My goodness. I mean, not only is it, is it wonderful to behold, but the people are really nice. I mean, just driving around, I saw many situations that should have had a horn involved. Everyone just lets everybody in. It's just like everyone's really polite. Uh, but, but the city is really international city, too. I don't know if you've seen this, but your gas stations have Indian food. That's fascinating. Uh, I went to uh, Marlboro Mall yesterday just to do some people watching because um, I love Calgarians. It was really fun. Uh, and I went to the food court and I saw a Greek restaurant, a Lebanese restaurant, a Japanese restaurant, a Chinese restaurant, an Italian restaurant, and a Mexican restaurant. I mean, it's like I'm in an airport or something. It's just everyone from all over the world is here. And do you realize how beautiful that is? What a privilege that is. And the thing that it made me think of immediately was Acts chapter 2, when people from all over the world had gathered at Jerusalem, and it was because they were all there, Peter was able to speak the gospel to them all, and then they all went back to where they came from, and the gospel spread throughout the land. Thousands were added because they came to one central place. And so when I think of that, I think of you, and I think of the opportunity that you have to reach the world just by staying here. It's an amazing thing and something we shouldn't overlook. So I'm really, really glad to be here. Calgary does have a, a special place in my heart because um, my family, I have family members who live here. Uh, my, my cousin's uh, just getting married, actually, in a few weeks to a woman who lives here. Uh, they're, they're Muslim. Uh, they go to the mosque down the street. Have you guys seen the, the signs on the side of some roads that say, come out to the July 1st barbecue at the mosque? Have you seen that? There are some of them, and... Um, that's quite a thing. The Muslims are inviting you to come out to their barbecue, uh, and they're going to be fasting, so they're just cooking for you. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I really hope some of you take advantage of that, because maybe you'll be able to reach out to some of them while they're trying to reach out to you, and hopefully then you can even reach people who are in my family. And it's with that heart that I wish to speak to you today. Um, I, I do wish to share some of my story, but the purpose isn't to talk about me at all. It's to share what God is doing in the world, even here, and what he has in store for you and why he has brought you here in this place. So let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be present. God, as we sit here in this wonderful air-conditioned room, freely able to walk in and not worry about the cost of losing our lives or of people coming and, and taking away our freedom to worship, Lord, we thank you for this privilege and we want to recognize that it is not something that everyone has. It is a gift from you. Lord, we want to thank you that you brought us here in our cars and you woke us up in our homes and we had food this morning and clothes to wear. And we just want to recognize that less than half the world has that privilege. That more than 50% of the people in this world live on less than $2.50 a day. And you haven't given us these gifts for us to feel guilty, but you've given us these gifts so that we can pour out for others. 
so that we can love others, so that you can equip us for the sake of your church and your gospel. So God, I pray that in this time, we would ask you to use us. We would take the gifts that we have and yield them back up to you, be it our time, be it our minds, be it our our, our finances, whatever they are, God, I pray that you would use us in this time. Meet us here. We acknowledge, God, that we can do nothing without you, but we thank you that you come when we pray and that you're listening. And so we ask you to meet us now. God, I pray as I speak that they wouldn't be my words, but that they'd be your words. And in fact, if everyone here just had an encounter with you and didn't remember a single word I said, that would be wonderful, God. We just pray that you would connect and touch people's hearts because we know when we encounter the living God, we never walk away unchanged. So be here, Lord, and guide us as we talk, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit about my story. I was raised in a Muslim family, a very, very happy, devout Muslim family. Uh, My father came from Pakistan in the 70s. In fact, he came the day that Elvis died. So when he landed from uh, the airplane, he got off and he saw a newspaper. The newspaper said, the king is dead. And he just scratched his head and he said, I I could have sworn they had a democracy. (laughs) And that's how my dad came, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed from Pakistan, knowing very little. And he came for a few reasons, one of which was freedom of worship. The sect of Islam that he was a part of uh, was being heavily persecuted in Pakistan. And so he came here, hopefully, to have some of that freedom of worship and to offer opportunity for my sister and for me. He married my mom a few years later. It was an arranged marriage. My mom was the daughter of a Muslim missionary. I don't know if you know this, but Muslims have missionaries. And so even though my mom's Pakistani by heritage, she was born in Indonesia because that's where her father was preaching, in the jungles of Indonesia. Her mom, so my maternal grandmother, was born in Uganda because her father was a Muslim missionary. And he was a physician. And so he was healing and preaching Islam. And so I came from this lineage of Muslim missionaries, and my mom was very, very devout. And so from a very young age, she taught me how to be a good Muslim. And what did that look like? Well, not only was it praying five times a day, like most people understand, but also reading the Quran. I I remember, even though I was raised in, in the West, the first language I learned to read was Arabic, because my mom wanted me to read the entire Quran in Arabic by the age of five, which I did. And she had me memorize the last seven chapters of the Quran by the age of five, which is nothing super special. It's just what Muslims do if they're devout. Um, To give you an idea of what my day looked like as a young child, like, for example, when I was in middle school, in the morning when my eyes opened, my mom had taught me to recite a prayer. Alhamdulillahilladhi ahiyana ba'adama amatana wa alayhin noshur. Anyone know what that means? No one speaks in tongues here. What kind of church is this? Honestly, I I didn't know what it meant either. (laughs) My mom had just taught me to recite it, but I later learned the translation, and this is what it meant. All praise belongs to the one who gave me life, causes me to die, and will raise me up again. That's a a prayer which which thanks God for waking me up every single morning because I don't know if I'm going to wake. That's something that God does for me. Thank you, God, for waking me up. But it also is a foreshadow of the resurrection, which Muslims believe in, the day of judgment. And so that's how I started my day. And then I would walk to the restroom, and 
Even as I'd walk to the restroom, I'd keep in mind how Muhammad would go to wash up. Because Muslims, in every single thing they do, if they're devout, they try to remember and emulate Muhammad. And so Muhammad, when he'd go to wash up, he would make sure to walk into the washroom with his left foot first. And so I would do that. To that degree, we tried to emulate Muhammad. And then I would do the ceremonial washing called wudu to go to pray the first of the five daily prayers. And after I prayed the first of the prayers, I'd go to the table, and my mom would make breakfast, and she would say, Nabil, what do we say before we eat? And I would say, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, in the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful. And she'd give me my food, and then I'd eat. And after the food, she'd say, Nabil, now what do we pray? And I'd pray a prayer, thanking Allah for having made me amongst Muslims. And she'd send me out the door. She'd say, Nabil, what verse should you recite as you're going to school? And I'd say, Ayat al-Kursi. And I'd recite a, a long section of the second chapter of the Quran. And she'd say, very good. Don't forget, before you start your uh, day at school, to recite that prayer that Moses recited. Before the Pharaoh, he asked God to give him the ability to speak and to give him knowledge. So recite that prayer every day. That's what, I mean, all that before 7 (laughs) a.m. I mean, that's how a devout Muslim lives his or her life, in constant remembrance of Allah. Now, not only did my mom teach me to be a good Muslim, but part of being a good Muslim for my mom was to defend me against Christianity. Now, understand, when people come from other places, they have presuppositions, they have notions about the country they're going to. So, I mean, for example, if you went to uh, Turkey, you have ideas about Turkey, and when you get there, hopefully those ideas will will be shaped or reformatted in order to fit the reality of what the country is like. But imagine if you get there and you never leave your house and you're just in your own enclave and maybe you just continue meeting other Americans and don't meet any Turks. You would constantly have these false notions about what people are like that would never get fixed. That's exactly what happened to my mom. She came in the the late 70s and for 35 years... No Christian ever invited her into their home. And because of that, she to this day maintains false notions about Christianity. What she was taught in Pakistan was look at what they do on TV. Look at how they dress on the beaches. Look at the state of their marriages in America. All of that is a result of the fact that they are a Christian nation. All the immodesty, all the divorce... All of that is the result of the fact they're a Christian nation. So you need to defend your son from that kind of thinking. And so from a very early age, I had been taught how to respond to Christianity. I'll give you an example of what that looked like. Uh, When I was a junior in high school, I remember uh, there was a girl in our class. Her name's Betsy. And she was kind of the token Christian. Uh, We knew that because she would wear a cross and she'd tell people she's a Christian. But also because she was always smiling. And it was kind of annoying. Why are you always smiling? Stop that. Um, But that was Betsy. She was just that way. And one day in class, she turned around. When the teacher had walked out, we had a few minutes. She turned around and she said to me, Nabil, do you know Jesus? Now, immediately when she asked that question, my respect for her shot up. Because I knew that Christians believed that if I didn't know Jesus, I was going to go to hell. I knew that. So why doesn't anyone tell me about Jesus? I thought it meant one of two things. If you as a Christian didn't share the gospel with me, I thought it meant one of two things. Either you didn't really believe it, or you didn't care if I went to hell. Just what else could it be is what I thought. 
And so when she asked me if I believed in Jesus, all of a sudden I respected her for that. Here's someone who actually cares about her faith. That said, I had been trained with the response. I, I used to give us, I used, my parents used to give me little books to read in order to be ready to respond to this kind of a thing. So I said to her, actually, Betsy, I do know Jesus. And she looked surprised. And I said, the Quran tells me that Jesus is virgin born. The Quran tells me that Jesus is the most miraculous man who ever lived that he was able to cleanse the lepers, heal the blind, and raise the dead. The Quran tells me that Jesus is the Messiah, and I know that he's going to come back at the end of times to initiate latter days. And she was shocked. She had no idea that's what Muslims believed. I think I went off her script because she didn't know what to say next. Uh, so I, I continued for her, and I said, but I also know, Betsy, that Jesus is not God. And she says, no, Nabil, that's the most important part. Jesus is God. I said, do you really believe that? Do you really believe Jesus is God? She says, absolutely. It's the foundation of our faith. And I said, okay, fine. For the sake of this conversation, Betsy, I'm going to grant you the Gospels. I believe they've been changed. I think they no longer contain Jesus' words. But for the sake of this conversation, let's say that it is reliable. Where does Jesus say that he is God? And she thought for a moment. And she said, well, doesn't Jesus say the Father and I are one? I said, of course he says that, but that doesn't mean he's God. I mean, when someone says they're one with somebody else, they're talking about being united in spirit. And in fact, Jesus makes that clear when he prays for the disciples to be one, just as he is one with the Father. It's not about Jesus being God, it's about being united in spirit. Look, if you want to see this more, more clearly, how about you look at the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says he could do no miracles in Galilee. Are you telling me God can't do miracles? What about the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom? Are you telling me God grows in wisdom? What sense does that make? Or how about, again, in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says he does not know when the end of times is. Nobody knows. Neither the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. Are you seeing what Jesus is saying here? That he doesn't know something that God knows. How could he possibly be God? And with each challenge... I could see her, her confidence dwindling. And then I gave her the coup de grace. I said, Betsy, if you really want to use the Gospel of John, how about where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I? I would believe Jesus if I were you. God is greater than he is. And if you want to know the truth about Jesus, ask me about Islam, and I will share the real Jesus with you. And so the one girl in our whole class who had shared the gospel with me, I took around her evangelism and made it into my own dawah, my own invitation for her to come to Islam. It was easy to do because people had never thought about the reasons why they believed. And by the way, I was trained to do this by the same group of Muslims who are here in Calgary. They're training their kids to do that to your kids. It's essential that we be able to articulate the foundations of our faith. I'm not suggesting we all become scholars and we all become theologians, but something that's foundational to your faith, be able to articulate it. And to give at least a brief defense, 1 Peter 3.15 demands that of us. If I really wanted to mess with a Christian, I'd ask them about the Trinity. That was fun. <laughs> they had no idea what they were talking about. 
and say, tell me about the Trinity. Are you, you're a Christian. You believe in the Trinity, right? Tell me about the Trinity. And the, and the Christian would say, well, God is three in one. I'd say, what does that mean? I mean, God's not a shampoo bottle, is he? What does it mean for God to be three in one? And there would be some, some sputtering, and ultimately it would be, well, it's a divine mystery, and I have to believe it by faith. And I'd say, time out. The way you're using the word faith is the same way I use the word ignorance. And if your faith is that, I want no part of it. It was very easy to do this, and I did this constantly. And basically, every time I had a conversation with a Christian, it bolstered me in my Islamic faith. Now, this continued until I got to college, when I finally met somebody who was able to articulate reasons for his faith. When I got to college, I joined uh, the public speaking and debate team. And uh, we were on our first tournament, and uh, I was put in a room with someone, and that evening I saw him reading the Bible. Now, I knew Christians believed in the Bible, but I thought, come on, they know it's been changed. They know it's not reliable. So I didn't think anyone actually read the Bible. Uh, this is the first time I saw anyone reading the Bible in their free time. I was shocked. I thought, this guy's especially deluded, so let's get to work on him. And so I said, hey, David, you realize that book you're reading is not trustworthy. And he looks up, and he closes the book, and he says, go on which I re should have realized that this conversation wasn't going to go my way, but uh, I was too into the moment. And I said, David, look, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, did he not? And the earliest church was in Jerusalem, so they probably spoke Hebrew. And then the New Testament, when it was written, was written in Greek. So that's a translation of a translation of Jesus' words before anything is ever written down. And then the New Testament goes to Latin, and it lasts in Latin for over a thousand years before it gets to German, and from German it gets to English. And so what we have today is a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. You're telling me nothing was lost in translation? How do I know what you're reading is actually what Jesus said? Now, I had used this objection against many Christians before. But what I didn't know about David is that he had been raised an atheist, it wasn't until he saw someone reading a Bible one day and he challenged that person that David slowly began to open his eyes to the truth of the Christian faith. And when I walked in that room, what I didn't know was that for five years, David had done nothing but study the Bible and apologetics. In fact, uh, that day when David saw that there was a Muslim on the debate team, he started praying and he said, God, can you please open the door for me to share the gospel? And I just walked right through that door. I was like, boom. Hey, what's going on? So David says, Nabil, I heard you on the phone with your mom a few moments ago. Were you speaking in English? I said, no. And he said, but then when I asked you after your conversation what you talked about, you told me in English. Was that a bad translation? No. And he says, Nabil, he says, Nabil, what you do when you're multilingual is you take one language and accurately translate the message into another, and that's exactly what the disciples did. Whatever language Jesus spoke to them in, and he could have been speaking Greek, they wrote it down in Greek. And of that Greek, we have in our possession over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Nabil, we know with certainty the message of Jesus. And I looked at him and I said, David... 
you're making this up. I've talked to thousands of Christians. No one's told me this before. He said, you think I'm making this up? I said, yeah, I think you're making this up. And he says, well, bring it. I said, it's been brought. Let's go. And so the whole night, we just dialogued about the Bible, and we just argued back and forth, and I kept saying things have been changed and mistranslated, and he'd give me responses to all my objections, and I realized that here was someone who actually cared about his faith, actually knew what he was talking about. And so it was exciting, it was fun, because I felt like I had a brother. Even though he was a Christian and I was a Muslim, we had the same zeal for God, and that connected us. And so as we conversed over time, we, I realized that he, has, he was a biology major, I was a pre-med major. And so we decided to sign up for classes together so we could sit in the back of the room and argue. Like, that's basically what we did. And then I'd go to his house. He'd come to my house. My mom would make him korma and biryani, and she'd make all this awesome food for him. I'd go to his house, and his dad would give me beef jerky. (laughs) Whatever, you know, we're friends. And I came to realize that at the end of it, I knew David would take a bullet for me. I knew that. He became my best friend. And the thing about the gospel is that it's actually not just another message. It's a call to die, to lay down your life at the feet of the cross. That's what the gospel is. And if somebody tells you to lay down your life and you don't trust that person, would you do it? Of course not. But David, I trusted, and I knew that whatever he told me, he was telling out of love. And that made a huge difference. We just kept conversing, and it took about a year for me to get to the point where I realized the New Testament is reliable, and what it says today is what it has always said. And so I said, okay, fine, David. A year later, I said, fine, David. The New Testament's reliable, but Jesus doesn't claim to be God. In fact, how do we know Christianity is true? Just because the New Testament is reliable doesn't make Christianity all of a sudden true. And it was at this point that I decided to become a little bit more systematic about my investigation. How do I know whether Christianity is true or false? You know, it's not just a matter of, of believing something random. It's, it's a matter of truth. What is true? And so I said, how, do, how can we investigate the truth of Christianity? Interestingly, from the very beginning, Christianity was preached as a falsifiable religion. It's either true or false. And how do we know it? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, the resurrection is the vindication of the Christian faith. Is there good reason to believe it? This is encapsulated in another verse very well. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 tells us, if you confess, maybe some of you know this verse, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Check it out. Three things. You believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Interestingly, these three things are all historically investigable. Was there a man in the first century named Jesus who died on the cross? That's something you can look into history to investigate. What do the sources say? What do the historical records tell us? Did this man claim to be God? We can look at the historical records and see what they say. And number three, did that claim to be God get vindicated by his resurrection? Now, some of you might say, well, resurrection's a miracle. History can't tell us about that. Well, if you investigate the events surrounding Jesus' death, what does it look like happened historically? If we don't preclude miracles, what does it look like happened? Now, why is this an interesting case? I found it fascinating 
When I was in medical school, I um, was in the psychiatry ward, working in the psychiatry ward, and we had people who would come in, and it was kind of, it was unfortunately a fairly common thing. People would come in with delusions of grandeur, and they would say things like, I am God. And the proper response to that is, well, come on in. <laughs> come on in. We've got a room for you. If you claim to be God, that is pathological. There's something wrong with you. And if somebody in the first century claims to be God, there's something probably wrong with them. But if a person claims to be God and then says, no, wait and see, I'm prophesying right now that I will be killed and then three days later I will raise myself from the dead to prove my claim to you. Now if somebody says that, you better believe I'm going to watch to see what happens. And if that man rises from the dead, then I have something to wrestle with. When Jesus was challenged, how should we know whether what you're saying is true? The, the response he gave, Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign. I should give it no sign except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. In other words, he says, I'm going to prove my claim via the resurrection. So, when you investigate history, what happens? I'll tell you, it wasn't easy. I had to learn how to study history. It wasn't my field. I was doing science. So I studied the historical method, determined how we can know with certainty and with what degrees of certainty whether something has happened or not. And after three years of investigating, three years of investigating, the conclusion I came to was this. Without doubt, historically speaking, Jesus died on the cross. Now, that's not something that's an easy conclusion for a Muslim to come to because the Quran explicitly denies that. Surah An-Nisa, Ayah 157, He was not killed, nor was he crucified, but so it was made to appear. The Quran says Jesus did not die on the cross. Christianity says you have to believe that he died on the cross. Look, let us dispense with these ridiculous notions that all religions are true, okay, because they contradict each other. One says Jesus didn't die, but the other one says he did die. They can't both be true. And history points squarely in favor of the Christian case. Even atheist and agnostic scholars who study the life of Jesus, like Marcus Borg and, and Bart Ehrman and Paul Fredrickson, say that the death of Jesus is one of the surest facts in history. So yes, History points to the death of Jesus on the cross. Number two, it points to his resurrection. When you study the historical events surrounding the death of Jesus, the best conclusion by far to explain those is that he rose from the dead. Now sure, you can remain agnostic and say, well, I don't know what happened. Fair enough. But if you provide any explanation at all, the best one by far is that he rose from the dead. And then number three, the one that mattered the most to me as a Muslim, did Jesus claim to be God or not? Every single source that we look at that's close to Jesus' life depicts him claiming to be God. And there's really no explanation for the origins of Christianity except that he did claim to be God. Once again, the best explanation points squarely in favor of the Christian case. So did I then all of a sudden become a Christian? No, I felt that yes, the case for Christianity was strong, 
But maybe the case for Islam is stronger. So I had thought from childhood that Islam was true. Everyone I trusted told me Islam was true. Don't underestimate the power of this social impact where everyone is telling you something, everyone you respect. If your parents, your grandparents, your imam, all the books you read, they all say that something is the case, it's really hard to disagree with that. But David pushed me on this, and he said, Nabil, you studied Christianity critically for all these years. Why don't you study Islam critically? Give me a case that would make Islam true, and let's study it critically. I said, fine. The core of Islam is the shahada, la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. There's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. So I would say there's two things. One is Muhammad is a prophet of God, and two, the Quran is the word of God. And if I can prove either of these, Islam is true. And David said, fair enough, let's start investigating. It didn't take long for me to realize, and this is, this is why it's so important to contrast, because contrast is the mother of clarity. When you point in, at Christianity and just poke holes, you can do that all day. But when you compare the Christian message with whatever you have, whatever you believe, then any time you try to poke a hole at the Christian case, you end up decimating your own case. It's much stronger by comparison. What do I mean by that? Well, I was ready to throw out the Gospel of John when I was studying Christianity. I was ready to throw it out because I believed it was written 60 years after Jesus died. It's a critical belief. I don't think that is the case. But at the time when I was studying, I said John's Gospel was written 60 years after Jesus died. That's just too late. Little did I know that the earliest foundations of Islamic history were written 150 to 250 years after Muhammad died big difference. And one after another, as I started studying Islam, I realized that the case for Islam was far weaker than the case for Christianity. The thing that really got me was the preservation of the Quran. I believe the Quran had never been changed. That is not true at all. And I believe that Muhammad was the perfect man. And I believed Muhammad was the perfect man because that's what I had been told from childhood. I had been told Muhammad was the best statesman, the best diplomat, the best husband, the best father. He took care of widows and orphans. He was a great general. That's what I thought Muhammad was. But when I studied the history, I found a man who I would never follow. I mean, not only was it something that was shocking to me, it was, there were things there that were simply unconscionable. Like nobody can do that, let alone a prophet of God. Now, I, I know some of you might be wanting details, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be a bit reserved here because for Muslims who hear this for the first time, it can really shake them. Um, I, can, I can say this because the books that are here, I don't get a dollar from them, so go get my book. <laughs> um, I have all the details in here for you to understand this. At the end of comparing Christianity and Islam, I knew without a doubt that the case for Christianity was far stronger. But I couldn't just convert because the cost was tremendous. Not only would I have to give up my whole social network, my, my family, my friends, all the people at the mosque, everyone would look at me like anathema. But according to traditional Islam, not our sect, but traditional sects of Islam. All four Sunni schools of thought and all major branches of Shia Islam teach that if you leave Islam under some circumstance or another, you can be killed for that. 
So not only would I give up everything I've worked for in this life, I might give up this life itself. And let's not forget Surah Al-Maidah, verse 72, which says, if you believe Jesus is God, you are going to go to hell. So not only giving up this life, everything I worked for, but if I'm wrong, I'm giving up my afterlife. Everything rides on this decision. And so I started asking God for personal uh, validation of what I had come up with. And how that looked for me was dreams and visions. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the Islamic world, dreams and visions happen quite regularly. And I'm not here to comment from where these dreams and visions come or whether what's happening. I don't know. But all I knew at the time was that my father had dreams that would come true. And my grandmother had dreams that would come true. I knew that. And I can testify to that even now. Muslims, by the way, don't believe that they can commune with Allah the way Christians believe they can commune with Christ. They, they, they just don't believe that. Even Muhammad had to receive revelation through an angel. But what Muslims do believe is that Allah can speak to them through dreams. If, if Allah is going to guide a Muslim, they believe it's going to be through dreams. And that's why they have a special kind of prayer called Salat Istikhara, designed specifically to ask Allah to give them a dream. And so I prayed for dreams and visions. Again, I wish I had time to share. It's in the book. But through one vision and three dreams, God consecutively showed me that Christianity was true. And this slowly began to wear at me because I knew what I would have to give up. The cost was great. It took a while to, to, to reckon with. I remember, by the way, by this point, I, I met David my freshman year, in the first weeks of freshman year of college. And by this point, I'm in my second year of medical school. So it's been a long time. And as I'm driving to school that day, I just remember on the highway, I know exactly where I was, and I was just crying. And I said, God, I, I, I know what I need to do, but please just give me time to mourn. Just give me time to mourn. But instead of going to school, I went back to my apartment and I said, God, I need your comfort. I need your comfort. And I was a mess. I didn't know what I was doing. So I pulled out the Quran and the Bible. And I put them both in front of me. And I said, God, please comfort me. Now, I, this might be a shock to you. But even up to this point, I had never gone to either the Quran or the Bible for personal guidance. I had gone to both to try to defend or attack or whatever. And, and I had memorized things that my imam had told me. But I would never actually gone to the texts for personal guidance. So I open up the Quran and I start looking. Where can I find comfort? And I start flipping through the pages of the Quran. And I realize very quickly that there is not a single verse in the Quran designed to comfort a hurting person. Not one. And so I put the book aside. I said, this doesn't, this doesn't relate to me in my life. I opened the Bible, didn't know where to go, figured Christians read the New Testament, so I'd start with Matthew. Opened up Matthew chapter 1, saw a bunch of genealogies, so I skipped them. I was Muslim, I had an excuse. You guys have no excuse. Skip the genealogies. It didn't take me long to get to Matthew chapter 5, where it said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I read that verse, and it was like God had written that verse for me. I came to the conclusion. I thought, God knew exactly what I was going to pray 2,000 years ago, and he wrote this verse for me. I mean, you guys can read the verse, but it's my verse. That's how I felt. And I kept reading, and it says, Blessed are the, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
I said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, I, I do hunger and thirst for righteousness, and no matter how hard I try, I'm not righteous, but I hunger and thirst for it. Why would God bless me even though I fail consistently? And as I was reading the pages of the New Testament, I saw a God who was very different from the God that I had believed in before. It was one who loved me regardless, like a father. And as I'm going through the pages, I, I, just, I just have to read everything. And it, it was really cool because as I would read something, I'd read the footnote and it would answer whatever question I was asking. So I'd be like, God, how do I know you can even hear me? I'd read the footnote and say, if you want to know that God can hear you, <laughs> go to 1 John 5. Sweet. Boom. 1 John 5. And I just started reading. It took me a week to get from Matthew 5 to Matthew 10. Just following footnotes. And here's what I found in Matthew 10. If you confess me before the people of this world, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And if you deny me before the people of this world, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. He says that. You have to proclaim him. It's not enough to just have the knowledge. You have to proclaim. You have to confess. He said it, not me. But I said, God, this is going to cost me my family. You know what the next verse has said? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And as I read that, I just thought, but God, it's not just my family. It's everything. This will cost me everything. You know what the next verse has said? He who does not pick up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, from the very beginning, the cost of the gospel is your entire life. And so I prayed. And no one had told me about the sinner's prayer. I prayed something that sounded very Muslim. <laughs> I said, Jesus, I submit that you are God and that you died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive me of my sins. And I will follow you. Now, even though I had intellectually submitted in that moment, I don't think the gospel really, really hit me until a few days later. Now, my mom, up until that point, if you had met her, she was gregarious, outgoing, friendly, hospitable, welcoming. But that night, when she confronted me about this, it was as if I had reached into her heart and turned a light off. And she's never been the same. And my dad served 24 years in the U.S. Navy. He's a veteran. I mean, he would go out to sea and I'd see him defending our country. And that's the, he was my Superman. I never saw him cry until that day. And he said, Nabil, this day I feel as if you've ripped out my backbone from inside me. And my parents left. My dad took my mom to the hospital because she felt she was having a heart attack. And I just dropped to my knees. And my honest prayer in that moment was, God, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me the moment I believed? Because if you'd killed me then, my parents wouldn't know. They'd be happy. 
I'd be in heaven. I'd be happy. I'd be worshiping you. You'd be happy. We'd all be happy. Why didn't you kill me the moment I believed? And I don't know about how you get when you're distressed, but when I'm distressed, I just, I just start rocking back and forth and saying things over and over again. I mean, my face was just leaking all kinds of things, like just saliva and mucus and tears, and I'm just rocking back and forth saying, God, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? I'm not here to mess with your theology. I'm just here to testify what happened to me. As I was repeating, why didn't you kill me? I heard these words, because this is not about you. It was as if God had picked up a megaphone and spoken into my being. And I was rooted to the ground. I could not move. I tried to move. I could not move for 10 minutes. It was as if God was resetting me. And when I finally could, all of that self-pity, all of that anguish was gone. It was like it belonged in a former life. And I stood up and I walked outside. I know this is going to sound cliche, but it's just true. When I walked outside, everything looked different. The trees, the ground, everything looked different. The thing that looked the most different was something that I had seen many times before. It was a man crossing the street. But instead of just seeing someone crossing the street, what I saw was someone that God had died for. And all of a sudden, my mind was blown by the fact that this God is unlike any other God. My whole life up until that time, I thought that God was standing removed from the universe, looking down into it and watching us and judging us and seeing if we could jump through certain hoops so that at the end of time, he might forgive us and let us into heaven. But no, that's not what God is like. He looks at us suffering. He looks at us toiling and killing one another. And he says, I love them so much that I am going to come into this world, and I am going to suffer with them. Can you stop and think, this is the same God who is able to create the universe just by thinking it into existence. A God who is so powerful we can never imagine it. One who's worshipped by angels. And if we saw one of those angels, we'd be tempted to worship it. That's how magnificent they are. But they worship that God, and that God was willing to come into this world as a baby? Why? What, what kind of God is this? And not just as a baby, but Jesus came in a family where he was accused of being an illegitimate child. Have you thought of that? And then he came in a blue-collar family, one that had to work with his hands. And then he finally gets to a point where he has friends, and he pours day in and day out all his time into his friends, and they betray him, one of them with a kiss. One of them had said that he would be with him until death, and he betrayed him. Have you thought about why? Jesus didn't have to choose that life. He could have come at any time, in any place. You know how they execute people in the United States? Lethal injection. You know what they do before they give you a lethal injection? They sterilize you in case you catch an infection once you're dead. It's just that humane these days. And Jesus... Looking in time history, he, he takes a look and he says, where out of which of these executions can I show how much I'm willing to undergo for the sake of those who I love? That one, the cross, that is the worst, most painful, most humiliating way to die that humanity has ever devised. I will choose that one to show them the depths of my love. 
And when you go on a cross, I don't know if you understand how bad crucifixion is. Cicero said, let no Roman citizen even hear the word crucifixion. Why? Because when people were being flogged, their skin would hang from their body in ribbons. The whip was designed to rip the skin off and for you to bleed tremendously. People's abdominal walls gave way and their intestines fell out. Their arteries and veins were laid bare before ever coming near the cross. And then once they're on the cross, they're scraping a skinless back against splintered wood for every single breath until you're pierced by a spear or your head is crushed by a hammer or you're suffocated by your knees being broken. All of this raised up so people can look at you and laugh at you and you'd be humiliated. God says, yeah, that's death. That one. Have you thought why? Because if you were born into a family called an illegitimate child, far from scorning you for that shame, God willing to show you that he loves you anyway. If you have to work day in and day out and you think, I just can't make these ends meet, yeah, Jesus loves you and he's willing to go through that with you. If anyone has ever said to you, I will be with you till death do us part, and they betrayed you, even with a kiss, yeah, God knows, God understands, and far from judging you, he's willing to go through it with you. If you have any infirmities, if you think, God, why me? Why am I the one who, who, whose body is, is just decimated? Why am I the one who's physically hurting? Why am I the one who has to deal with this cancer? Why am I that one? Instead of leaving you to despair, God says, I will join you in your suffering. But greatest of all, I will give you the gift of being in heaven, in eternal bliss, not for anything you've done, but because of how much I love you. And he died on the cross for our sins. And as we think about the gift of eternal salvation that we have, our first thought should not be, well, great, I'm going to go to heaven. I can do whatever I want. Far from it. Our thoughts should be, as we look at Jesus on the cross and how much he suffered for us, out of love for us, we should remember his words from John 15. As I have loved you, so love one another. When we think of Jesus dying for us, while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And people tell me, Nabil, how am I supposed to handle all these Muslims who are immigrating to the United States? How am I supposed to handle all of this influx of people who want to build mosques in the West? How am I supposed to handle this? The answer for that is while we were Christ's enemies, he died for us. And so when people who we perceive to be our enemies are coming, we should be willing to love them even to the point of our death because we have eternal life. If somebody needs our clothes, what does Christ say? If you have two tunics, give one away. If you have food, give it away. If you, God, is, he loves you more than he loves the sparrows. He loves you more than he loves the flowers. They're fed, they're clothed. Don't worry about yourself. I've got you covered for eternity. Start pouring yourself out for others. Don't get it? Watch me. I'm gonna die for you. And if you call yourself my follower, follow 
me. There is no spirit of fear in being a Christian. If people come here to kill us, let them come. Let us follow our Lord. And in the meantime, let us love them with the gospel. We call ourselves Christians. Do you know what we've done? We've taken the Lord's name, Christ, little Christ, Christians. We've taken the Lord's name. Let us not take it in vain. You have but a short time to live on this earth. Very short. But this short time is the only time we have to share the gospel and to fight for people. And the best thing you can possibly do with this life is love God and love others such that the chorus of heaven is filled with voices that you had a hand in bringing by his grace. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us despite our failures. God, we thank you that you've offered us eternal life even though we can never earn it for ourselves. That you're not a God who stands back and judges, but you're a God who steps in and loves us regardless. God, I pray that we would know you. That we would be transformed by your person and by your love. That we would seek you, God, in everything we do. The house that we're worried about, the car that we're worried about, the mortgage that we're worried about, all that will burn. But people, they will live forever. We have never met a mere mortal. So God, help us love people. Help us give everything we have to love people like you love them so that we can truly be called your followers. Thank you, God, for making us with a purpose that we're not accidents, but that you placed us here in Calgary in 2015 for a reason. May we know what that reason is. And may we pursue it. And God, I pray for all of us in this room who might not yet have a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that they would know how beautiful you are and that they would run to you and that they would leave behind all shackles that hinder and that they would know that fulfillment and purpose and joy is only found at the feet of our God. Draw back people to you, Lord, for eternity in this very moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we just thank Nabil for being here? What an amazing story. And more importantly, what an amazing Savior. I believe God has uh, spoken to us today, and it is an opportunity for us to respond. I'm going to ask all of us to stand right now. Nabil has given us a number of challenges today, but two things stand out. The message of the cross. You know, I've heard many preachers speak on the cross, but Nabil speaks with a unique passion about it. And it comes from somebody who never believed 
that Jesus died on a cross. But once his eyes were opened, what a transformation. And God wants to do that transforming work in your heart today. So if there's anybody among us here, and you're yearning for that love, it was that love that was demonstrated for you on the cross. And we want to give you an opportunity to receive that love, to receive Jesus into your life. For his blood was shed for you, and he wants you to know that he loves you. The second challenge that was given to us is discipleship, a new way of looking at discipleship. Because the call to follow Jesus is not just an easy message for everyone. It's a call, as Nabil says, it's a call to die. It's a costly discipleship. And God has challenged some of us about that. You need a renewed vision of what it means to be all in for Jesus, of what it means to be fully surrendered to Him. So as our worship team now leads us in this closing song, I want to give an invitation for you to just come forward here to the altar. If God is tugging at your heart and you want to make a commitment to Him, this is an opportunity for you to come here and kneel and express our love and devotion to the Lord. Would you do that with me? Lord, we want to say this from our heart. We would rather have you than anything else in this world. We love you, Jesus, with all our hearts for all that you have done for us, for you redeemed us, you ransomed us, you gave us new life, you have filled us with your spirit. And now we are yours, Jesus. We are willing to follow you in the path of discipleship. We are willing to take up the cross, deny ourselves, and follow in your footsteps. Use us, O Lord, we pray, as your instruments to take this gospel that the people and the nations who are living here in our neighborhoods will come to know Jesus in a personal way. Help us as a church to continue to have this passion for evangelism, a zeal for discipleship, that we will serve you all the days of our life until you return, Lord Jesus. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.